always good to catch up, isn't it? We could spend our morning doing it, but uh, I'm very keen to get us into God's Word. Just come from Older Road. It was great to, to be up there. It's been almost a year since I've been there um, because I've been spending my time with you lovely people. But it was very nice to see uh, how well they're doing, and they all send their love as well, which is great. Um, this morning we're in Daniel 4, and we're continuing our preaching series through the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel really looks at what it means to live in exile and how God calls us to act with integrity wherever we are. And this morning, we're looking at a dreamer. And this dreamer's been dreaming before in Daniel. And we're about to see him dreaming again. I don't know about you, I actually don't really dream very much. Uh, I can't really relate to Nebuchadnezzar in the same way. Normally, I go to sleep, wake up uh, far too few hours later. Uh, without a dream to be found. Mrs. Hobby, on the other hand, now, now, your dreams are good, aren't they? There's plot twists, murders, oh yeah. (laughs) I don't know what I did, but one night she woke up and told me that I was the murderer, so I'd obviously wound her up the day before, but there you go. Well, this morning we're looking at a dreamer, and I want to remind you about the key players in our story. We've got Daniel, unsurprisingly, because the book is named after him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others who are in Babylon, not Jerusalem. And they're living life as Israelites in a society that's making it incredibly difficult for them. We've got King Nebuchadnezzar. He's our dreamer this morning. And he is the greatest ruler in the world. And he's presiding over this self-centered empire, the most important of its time. And Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach, Abednego and others are constantly battling to show integrity in their faith in a context that's trying to tell them to live another way. Nebuchadnezzar is this zealous king. He was actually born into the position and he was groomed by his dad to take over the helm. And he's actually the longest serving king in the Babylonian empire. 40 years he ruled, all told. And in Daniel 2, we hear of Nebuchadnezzar as a man who has trouble sleeping and when he does, he has these weird dreams. So in in Daniel 2, one night he has this dream and it troubles him. So he calls all the magicians and the sorcerers and he says, right, you have to tell me what I dreamt and interpret it. And they turn around and say, well, it's impossible. We can't do it. So he orders the death of all wise men in Babylon. I mean, it seems like a bit of an overreaction to me, but this is the kind of guy we're dealing with, all right? And Daniel and his crew, they were for the chopping block. They were part of that wise crew. And so all of a sudden, their lives were in trouble. But God gave Daniel wisdom to speak and wisdom to interpret the dream, telling Nebuchadnezzar that the God of heaven was the one that reveals mysteries. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel 2 is of this giant statue made of four metals, and it foretold of four empires, including the Babylonian one that Nebuchadnezzar was presiding over, that will all fall one after another, but that God would set up a kingdom that will endure forever. And we know that that's God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the one that endures forever. See, Nebuchadnezzar is so delighted with the interpretation that he declared, surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. At this point, we might think he's got it. Hey, this Nebuchadnezzar guy, he finally understands who God is. But then we turn the page over to Daniel 3, and the very next thing our king does, even after seeing God at work, is build a giant golden statue. And I don't know about you, If I'd just been warned that statues weren't a good thing, my next step wouldn't have been to build a massive one. But this is is our prideful king here, right? He builds this giant statue and he says, everybody in Babylon has to bow down and worship this statue. 
And if you've ever been to Sunday school, you'll know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bend the knee. They know who their God is, and it's not this statue, so they don't bow. And all of a sudden, they get chucked into a fiery furnace. Time's up for them. But God rescues them out of that fiery furnace. Not even the clothes are singed. That's how much God rescues them. And it prompts Nebuchadnezzar to say, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned to piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. So even though Nebuchadnezzar has seen God at work, you kind of get this feeling like he's not really, he doesn't really get it. I mean, you don't turn houses into piles of rubble, mate. I mean, come on, you know. So on to Daniel 4. And that's where we're going to be spending this morning. And Daniel 4 actually takes place about 20 years after our fiery furnace incident. And I wonder if our kings learned his lesson. As we read, remember that Nebuchadnezzar has already been humbled twice by seeing God at work. The most powerful king in the world at the time. How's he going to respond now? Well, you'll be pleased to hear he's been at the cheese again before bed. uh, And he falls asleep and has another dream. And we're going to read and see what happens. It's on page 888 in your Bibles if you want to follow. Uh, And because it's quite a chunk, I thought I'd hand you over to somebody whose voice is infinitely better than mine, who can read it for us. Let me find you a microphone. So, chapter four. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, "'Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, "'strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Let the animals flee from under it "'and the birds from under its branches. "'But the stump and its roots, "'bound with iron and bronze, "'remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. "'Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven "'and let him live with the animals "'among the plants of the earth. 
Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone who wishes, and sets over them with the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field whilst its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes." The command to leave the stump of the tree and its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll give you a Bible. Is that all right? So, this isn't a dream, it's a nightmare. No wonder the king's frightened. His dream is about his own destruction. Nebuchadnezzar is warned of the consequences of his pride. He's met God's power twice, and both times he's very much continued to rule his own way, with his own self-interest at heart. Thus far, despite warnings and what he's seen, he's remained largely untouched. His kingdom's intact. From the outside, it looks like he's got it all together. This is the most powerful ruler in the world presiding over a mighty empire. Surely he's untouchable. But beware hubris. God is able to humble the mightiest of men. And that's what we're being told. Nebuchadnezzar, you've not learned your lesson. So this time you will understand God's power firsthand. Also got to have a look at the bravery of Daniel here. He's standing in front of the most powerful man in the world. Somebody who could order his death with a click of a finger. And he's got form in this area as well. He's already said, I'm going to tear their houses to piles of rubble. You know, we know what kind of guy this guy is. Yet, Daniel's still got the integrity and bravery to tell it how it is. And more than that, he even tells him to renounce his sin and turn to God. In our context, imagine standing in front of Putin or Donald Trump 
Donald Trump's this fiery character, isn't he? And he's got this, he's got this habit of firing people the second they do something that, that he doesn't agree with. But if you had to stand in front of Donald Trump and say, renounce your sin and turn to God and everything you're doing is wrong, I think I'd be a little bit nervous as well, wouldn't you? Again, we see integrity as a key theme throughout Daniel. It's hard, but Daniel does what God needs him to do. And I wonder what this looks like in your life. Where are your Nebuchadnezzar figures that God is calling you to have integrity with? Is it at work or with your money or with your family? Remember, God's calling us to a life of integrity, even when it's hard. And Daniel knows it's hard. The passage just told us he's distressed, he's terrified about knowing the interpretation of this dream, yet he's faithful to God. This passage, and I don't know if you spotted it, but as we were reading it, it almost sounds as though it's been written from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. And that's because it has. Daniel 4 takes the, uh, takes the form of a letter that Nebuchadnezzar writes to the whole of Babylon. And it's actually written retrospectively. What I mean by that is the events in Daniel have already taken place, and then Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to say, wow, this is what God's done. Isn't that cool? So when we started in the first three verses, and it started with praise to the Lord Most High, you'd have thought, well, where's Nebuchadnezzar getting all this from? Well, he's getting it because he already knows what's about to happen. So what is about to happen? Well, unsurprisingly, God's word becomes true. The dream is fulfilled, and 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar, having not listened to a word of it, is walking on the roof of his palace, and he's loving life. And he's remarking on his own greatness and how brilliant he is. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, God meets. All of a sudden, God comes and humbles him. Whose power is most mighty? A voice from heaven tells him that his royal authority will be taken from him and he will be eating grass like the ox. Daniel 4 tells us immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. His hair grew like feathers. He had nails like bird's claws. In other words, he went from being the most powerful man in the world to a total reject. He lost his sanity, his position, his power, everything. He loses his mind and begins to look like an animal. One commentator puts it this way. The king who, like a tree, had sheltered animals has himself become nothing nothing but an animal. Reminds me a little bit of the story Beauty and the Beast. We watch it at home with the kids and you see this kind of royal, kingly, princely figure who's full of pride, being humbled and turned into a beast in a moment. The problem is, this story's got no dancing teacups in it. This really happened, okay? This, this really happened to the most powerful man in the world. It's not a laughing matter. So the allotted time finished and Nebuchadnezzar's sanity was restored as was promised in this dream, leaving him once again to pay lip service to God. And if you remember, Daniel said, you you need to declare that God is the God of heaven, otherwise this is what's going to happen. Well, he didn't do it, and so it happened. And now, after the allotted time had passed, finally we hear Nebuchadnezzar say this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of his hand. You see how good this God is. And the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So I'll ask you, do you think Nebuchadnezzar's learned his lesson? The thing that I found most interesting about that final passage was even as he's paying lip service to God, he can't resist a little bit of self-promotion, can he? He even says, now I'm greater than ever. I'll leave, uh, I'll leave you to think about whether he's really learned his lesson or not. But what does this morning's passage tell us about our lives? The title of this morning's message is Pride Comes Before a Fall. And we certainly saw it here. Nebuchadnezzar, even in that last verse, remarks those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. As well, he can attest. He's got first-hand experience now. But I want to draw out three things that we can learn from Daniel 4 this morning. The first thing for the note-takers among you is God is sovereign. That's number one. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and we need to walk humbly before him. While this chapter's got a clear thread of pride, it's all in the context of God's sovereignty. Another commentator puts it this way, clearly at issue in this chapter is the relationship of earthly power and heavenly power, the power of Nebuchadnezzar versus the power of God. And having read what we've just read, there's only one winner, isn't there? Three times in Daniel 4, we're told that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. This phrase actually appears three times, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. And when the Bible repeats something, that's a clue for us that it's really important. If you're ever reading the Bible and you see repetition, that should be a sign. Pay notice, this bit's important. And it isn't just that we're told about God's sovereignty, but we also see it evidenced. If you think about Daniel 4, God gives Nebuchadnezzar the dream, God gives Daniel the interpretation. The loss and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar's mind was all God, as was the loss and uh, restoration of Nebuchadnezzar's throne. In every step of the story, we see God's sovereignty. He's working for his good at every turn. And we don't just hear of his sovereignty and power, we actually see it displayed through this story. He leaves even the world's mightiest king declaring praise to the king of heaven. The world's mightiest king writes a letter declaring to his whole kingdom that God is the one who's got ultimate power. The interesting thing about that is, can you think of any other situation that might have brought this about? See, God is sovereign. He's working things for his good. That truly is a king humbled there. When we come face to face with God's power and might, we can't help but be humbled. So if you walk away knowing just one thing this morning from Daniel 4, it's this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. The dream that, Daniel t- uh, that, uh, from, that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel 2 told us that God would establish a kingdom that lasts forever. And here we're reminded again, no kingdom comes close to the kingdom of God. He's sovereign. I did think I'd just take a moment. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm uh, in the coffee shop 
on Tuesday. Sovereign's not a word that I use very often. You know, it doesn't really form, uh, form come into my memory very much. So for those who haven't really got a grasp of what that word sovereign means, just think of the word ultimate or supreme or above all else. That's what we're talking about when we say God's sovereign. God is above all else. He is ultimate, above everything. So if God is above everything, what does that mean for you? Well, if you're finding work tough, it means that God's got ultimate authority in your workplace. It means that when you go to work after the bank holiday, you're not really working for whoever your boss is. You're working for the king of kings, the one who's above all else, who is sovereign even in your workplace. If you're struggling with money, well, then come to the one who's got ultimate authority over everything on this earth, which includes money. If your toddlers are being disobedient, good news for you. God's got authority even over the stubbornest of children. Praise Jesus, eh? And as the people of God, we find joy and comfort and security in his kingship. Whatever the situation, we're in the winning corner. And that might not mean victory today, but it will mean ultimate victory over the things that really, really matter. And it means that our confidence, our assurance, our pride can rest with the one who will never fail, the one who will always overcome our ultimate rescuer. So that's point one, God is sovereign. Moving on to point two that our story tells us, God is eternal. God is eternal. We're told again and again in this passage that God is eternal. If you have a look at verse three, it says his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Then have a look at verse 34. Guess what? It says it again. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Remember what I said about repetition? When you see it repeated, that means it's really important. God's eternal. What do we learn about God by reading this? Or what can we see when we contrast God's kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar's? We're being told about a God who is eternal, a kingdom that will never perish. Again, back to Daniel 2, when Nebuchadnezzar's last dream warns of four kingdoms that will crumble and one that will last forever. Here we see Nebuchadnezzar coming to the same realization. God is an eternal God. His kingdom's been established, past tense. It's continuously established, present tense, and will endure forever, future tense. In this preaching series, we've been reminded that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, their exile is in Babylon away from their true home with their people in Jerusalem. And we've been told that it's akin to our exile whilst we're here on earth. See, if you call yourself a Christian here this morning, then heaven is your home. It's to be with God and to be with his people. And our time on earth is a little bit like Daniel's time in Babylon. We're exiles in a foreign land and we're being called to honor God whilst we're here, anticipating a day where we get to go home and be with God forever. So we may be in our version of Babylon, but... Who can we conclude is truly king in light of this story? Well, it's not Nebuchadnezzar, is it? His power fails when compared to the power of God. He loses his mind. So who's really in charge here in Babylon? Who's got the ultimate authority? You see, we may be in Babylon, but God is the true king. We've got a God who is over all things, even when it might not seem like it. Even Babylon isn't so far removed from God that he can't stretch out his hand in a moment and save it, or restore it, or change circumstance, or bring about his will. That's something that we'd all do well to remember. Nothing in this world is too far removed from God that he can't change it, or take it away, or restore it in a moment. Think about the last week for you, how that's gone. How's your health been? 
Mine's been okay, not brilliant, you know. What about the things that you've been praying and asking God this week? How do they look now in light of this awesome picture we've been painted about God and who he is, his sovereign, eternal God? Our circumstances should pale in comparison to how big God is. We've got a true understanding of this eternal God. The things that we're facing hopefully seem momentary in comparison. See, because God's eternal and he's got a perfect plan for this world and his people, he knows the end of the story in a way that we don't quite know. This is really important to note because when we're talking about God's sovereignty and eternality, we can too quickly get caught up in times or recall things to mind where actually things seem pretty spectacularly unsovereign, right? There's times where we've prayed for healing and it hasn't happened, and I can attest to that one. There's times where we've prayed for people who haven't been saved, prayed and jobs haven't been found, prayed for money that's never come. It can be hard to feel God's sovereignty when circumstances against us. And then to make matters worse, some bloke in a pink shirt turns up and says, hey, guys, it's all going to be fine. God's sovereign. Yeah, let's all go and worship. It's hard, isn't it? Really hard when what we experience in life doesn't match up with what we see in the Bible. But in the context of Daniel 4, this is also a limited and rather human view of what it means to be eternally sovereign and wise. God knows what he's doing. He does in this story, and he's bringing it all about for his own ultimate good and glory. Another commentator says this about Daniel 4. The author's goal is more than simply to teach. He seeks to assure the suffering, bewildered Israelites that despite appearances, their God is sovereign over earthly kingdoms and gives them to whom he wills. What a powerful assurance the words of the king must have had for an Israelite in exile. This God is a sovereign God, and he's even in control of their captors. Imagine you're at home, you're living in exile, and you get a letter from the king, the guy who's got you captive, saying, hey, you were right, your God is sovereign. And it's in that context that we're to view our hardships as well. God knows what he's doing, and it's all for his glory and for our good, despite appearances. In the context of eternity, our present hardships will feel like a blink of an eye. So fleeting. For those of us who are experiencing pain or worry or regret or hurt in hospital with a broken ankle, having a proper view of who God is helps us to navigate these hardships in the knowledge that there's more going on than we can see. And ultimately, that God is sovereign and he's working these situations for our good. So if you're in trouble and you're hurting and you're sore and you're fed up, just remember God is a good God who loves you and he's going to work this situation for his glory and your good. And one day you'll be in heaven praising him in a place where there's no more suffering or pain or worry or insecurity. And that is where we find our hope, Christians. And so to the subject of this morning, pride comes before a fall. If God is eternal and he's the true king, then we need to understand that our response has to be one of humility. This whole passage isn't about moralism. I'm not here this morning wagging my finger saying, oi, everybody be better behaved and all be more humble and that's how we should live our lives. But a true understanding of who God is helps us to understand pride and humility in the right context. We're coming this morning to the root of all power, the root of all authority and strength and knowledge 
how can we be prideful when we come up against a God who is that big? This problem is addressed time and time again in the Bible and time and time again in our lives. From the very first humans, Adam and Eve, who attempted to put themselves alongside God in the Garden of Eden, God's been warning us that he is God and we are not. And from Adam and Eve right up to present day, pride is still a big issue. I wonder how many of you uh, recognize this chap here. Anyone know who he is? Lance Armstrong. Points to whoever said that. Is that you, Steve? Well done. Lance Armstrong, that's him. He was once heralded as the greatest athlete of all time. This is a guy who had seven Tour de France titles, a host of other awards, a massive charity, celebrity friends all around him. He'd amassed his own kingdom of celebrity. Yet even he ended up being humbled. In 2012, he was implicated in what the courts recorded as the ringleader of the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program sport had ever seen. Yikes. Armstrong didn't contest the charges, and years later, he even admitted to some of them. We're talking about pride coming before a fall. I mean, this man was on top of the world. He had riches and fame and praise, yet it was all built on a lie. In the last year or so, he's actually made attempts to re-enter public consciousness. And to be honest, it's not gone too well for him, mostly because he's still full of pride. USA Today wrote about him recently and said this, six years after his grand confession, Armstrong still doesn't get it. It's not about the cheating, it's about him. Another sports reporter wrote, Lance Armstrong let pride and hubris, not doping, ruin his legacy. Armstrong's fall didn't happen because he purposely cheated, and it didn't happen because he got caught. This fall happened because he could never figure out when to give up the race. Pride's dangerous because it tells you that you can be a god. It told Nebuchadnezzar he was the king of the whole earth. It told Lance Armstrong that his personal glory could last forever. He was building a legacy that no one was going to tear down. These are men who thought they were untouchable, but remember, no one is too far from God's reach. And here's the truth for you this morning. There's only one God, and it doesn't matter who you are. King Nebuchadnezzar, Lance Armstrong, me, you. God is the only one worthy of ultimate praise. So humility for the Christian is the right and proper response to understanding who God truly is. As I said earlier, the Bible's full of examples of God humbling the proud, but it's also full of instruction about how to live in humility. Let me uh, reference Paul when he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this to them, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're to boast in the Lord this morning. God is perfectly, eternally sovereign and about a great work in our lives. His plan is one of salvation, and he saves and rescues a people for himself through his son, Jesus. We can't save ourselves, so Jesus does it for us. So where do we boast? Well, it's not in us, is it? There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We boast in Jesus. He did it for us. We stand here this morning because of what Jesus has done to set us free. 
This is the best news you'll ever hear because it means in spite of how you feel or what you're going through this morning, God loves you so much that he made a way for you to be with him, a part of his perfect eternity forever. That's what you've got to boast in. You see, this passage isn't God's way of teaching us to be nice people, like some sort of Christian version of self-help where we all turn up and learn a lesson and walk out feeling better about ourselves. Understanding the meaning of this passage helps us to view our whole faith and how we live. We've got a God who has saved us from eternal punishment and promoted us to eternal glory with him. We've got a God who's sovereign and ultimate power and authority, who helps us and equips us and sustains us and strengthens us. A God who is sovereign and eternal, a God who is far and above all else, outside of time, all-powerful, all-knowing, wisdom personified, a God who saved us. Humility, then, isn't a pleasant character trait for Christians looking to become better versions of themselves. It's a response to understanding who God truly is. When we're understanding pride and humility, and we're not doing it in the context of how we're supposed to live our own lives, we're doing it in context of our relationship and response to an awesome God that we worship. If we truly understand who God is and what he's done for us, what he'll continue doing for us forever, then how can we stand here and be prideful? So when life's hard and we're tempted towards pride, the answer is that we need to start seeing God as he truly is. When we make much of God and understand that we are who we are because God is who he is, an all-powerful savior who chose us, humility is the only real response. So let's get real on this for a second. This culture, our workplaces, our neighborly interactions, social media walls, they're all full of pride, aren't they? One-upmanship and the drive to get ahead and subtle nods to oneself in a conversation. The sterilized view of our lives that we put on the internet for everyone to see. Our televisions are full of people trying to get ahead. They're going on whatever the latest reality TV show is because they want to start building their own empire that's all about them. This is a culture that's made life all about the me, all about the individual. To the untrained eye, it looks as though God's been dethroned and self rules. We've made our own personalized, sterilized, self-promoted kingdoms to preside over. And as the statistics will tell us, we've never been unhappier as a result. As a quick experiment, head to social media after church, pop onto Instagram or onto Facebook, and have a look at how many posts are about me, myself, and I. You must trust me when I tell you that nobody's got it as together as their social media walls will tell you. See, for me, Daniel 4 is important because it cuts to the heart of one of the biggest issues in our society, in that we've made idols of ourselves. So let's redeem it. When we head out of this building, let's resolve to make much of God. My friends, this life's not about us, it's about God. And as we move back to worship, I want to encourage you to examine your hearts. Are there areas that you've shown pride in when you should have given the glory to God instead? Do you need to apologize for times where pride is given over, where you've made a little bit too much of yourself and not quite enough of God? Let's come and worship him. And like Nebuchadnezzar did, when faced with the glory of God, all we can do is worship. I'll invite uh, Gemma and the team to come back up and I'm just going to pray for us. I'll invite you to stand as we pray as well.
Lord, I thank you that Daniel 4 helps us to see that you are sovereign and you are eternal. You, are, you have established, are establishing, and will continue to lead a kingdom that will endure forever. I thank you that your kingdom is over all powers and authorities and bosses and rulers that this world has to offer. Nothing is more powerful than you. Nothing is more important than you. You are the one who has saved us and made a way for us to be with you. You are the one who is sovereign, powerful, above all things. You are eternal. Your kingdom will last forever. And Lord, help us to view our lives in that context. When things are a little bit hard, when we're tempted towards making much of ourselves, help us to remember that we've got a God, the one who is king of all in this world and king of eternity, who we can turn to. Lord, we want to make much of you. We want to make this life about having integrity, living it with you. Lord, help us to see you as we're supposed to see you. And I pray that we would act in rightful humility as a response to seeing who you truly are. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.